0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. How's it going? You guys didn't have to say hi to each other. He didn't. He forgot to make you, so maybe turn to the person next to you and say, hey, how's it going? Yeah? Okay. Thank you. Nice job. Nice job. Well done. Cool. It's good to be with you guys tonight. It's always good to be in the house of the Lord. Um, always thankful for Wednesdays, just need that time in the middle of the week, man. Start trudging through those work days, it's nice to have time to be with the body, to be with the family of God. Um, I was going to have us take a time of prayer uh, for Stephanie, but we, we did that already, so that's perfect. I did, however, want to just thank you guys um, for how much people have been praying and supporting the Stroms through this. Um, I'm assuming most of you guys already sort of know some of the updates on uh, on social media and things like that, but um, man, God has just been doing miracle after miracle uh, in this whole situation, um, and, and even more than that, God has just been bringing this church and really his church at large together in a way that is absolutely supernatural. Just sitting in here, uh, yesterday we had a just sort of impromptu prayer meeting we brought I mean, 70, 80 people, something like that showed up, and this whole place was just filled with prayer for them. It was so cool to look around and see how God redeems uh, some of the darkest of times. Um, so praise God for that. I did want to, to, to just kind of make one announcement. Um, for those of you that are looking to help, and I know that everyone probably is looking to, to get involved somehow, um, we, we set up a, a, a meal program. What am going calling call it the wrong thing. Uh, to, to be able to set, uh, uh, send some meals over to the, the Stroms, we already have, what is it, 26 Gals, that 27 signups, people that have already signed up to bring them meals. So that's amazing. Um, What we could also use, though, and I'd throw out there to you guys is Craig, if you guys don't know, is really the one leading the setup crews uh, as far as the chairs and all of the the production that goes into a Sunday morning, which is um, a lot. And so what we could really use also is some extra help, some extra hands on the setup crew just to help out Craig in this time uh, where he's probably not going to be as involved, obviously. So um, if as many of you guys or even as you gals that maybe want to get involved and sign up uh, for the setup crew, there's going to be a couple of deals you can fill out in the back with your information uh, at the the info table back there. And so um, if you feel it on your heart to jump in and help. That's how you can do it. Um, Also, are we still doing meals? Are we still in Mary Melgren back there? You can go talk to her or at the info desk about getting signed up to bring a meal to the Stroms. And donations, donations. yes, because there's going to be medical bills. Okay, check Strom name on there to Heritage Christian Fellowship, and that'll go to them. Um, So, capish? All right, let's pray, guys. Lord, uh... God, there's nothing that I can say that will bring life to our hearts. There's nothing that I can bring, no word of knowledge, no uh, um, profound thought, Lord, that can truly change the human heart. God, only your eternal and powerful divine spirit can transform the heart. And so tonight, God, it's not about my words. It's not about my thoughts. God, it's about holding high your word. And it's about us tonight, God, submitting ourselves under your word. We thank you so much for the Old Testament and what a joy it's been, God, to see your character shine through the pages of these stories. And we just pray tonight, God, that once again you would reveal yourself through the scriptures as we study them faithfully together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, alright. Book of Esther. Everybody got it open? Uh, While you're getting there, uh, we're doing an Old Testament survey, Old Testament overview type of a study for those of you that maybe are just joining us. Uh, Really what that just looks like, what that means is that we're taking the Old Testament on at a pretty rapid pace. We're taking uh, literally one book a night. Uh, which is a lot, depending on the size of the book. Um, But we've been doing that for for a few months now. We're all the way up to the book of Esther. And the reason we're doing that, just to get you guys up to speed again, uh, the reason we're doing that is because a lot of times when we teach the Bible, we tend to go more in depth, take it a verse by verse, and that's a, a very important way to teach and study. But it's also very important to get up out of the weeds from time to time and to see God's really grand narrative that he, he weaves all throughout uh, the Bible. Now, the Old Testament, if you guys know, if you've ever tried to read the Old Testament, it's hard to get through some of the stuff in the Old Testament. Uh, sometimes it seems a little confusing. Uh, sometimes it doesn't seem like it jives with the New Testament. And really, that's just because of a lack of understanding. Uh, we've all felt that before. And so what we're trying to do through this series is equip you guys as Christians to be able to read the Old Testament for yourself to be able to see the power uh, in the entirety of the scriptures, not just in the New Testament, and really to see how God worked and interacted with his people in Israel. So Esther is an amazing book. This is one of the funner books to teach because it's shorter. Uh, I mean, when we did Exodus, it was like, what, 40-something chapters. Uh, Genesis was like 50 chapters. This is 10 chapters, so it's doable. We can get through it. Um, And I'll say this right away. The cool thing about the book of Esther is it's it's really a brilliant story. Uh, it's, it's history. It's a true event, but it is written in such a way that's really exciting. And my goal tonight isn't so much to, to preach a sermon as much as it is really just to let this book speak for itself. So we're really going to be just looking tonight at the narrative of Esther. And then at the end, I'm just going to make a few comments, try to answer a few questions uh, about this book. But I want Esther to jump off the pages, hopefully to you guys, in a way that you see the power of what God did in this story. Now, Esther is a unique book for a couple of reasons. Did everybody get a handout by the way? Uh, today we have a salmon colored handout. Uh, if I called it pink, I'd probably wrong. Is it salmon? Did I get it? Yes. Five points. Okay. Uh, me and Mary have this thing going where she prints it on a color and then I guess what it is. It's fantastic. Um, Anyways, uh, so this is a handout for you guys to sort of follow along. I just put some questions there that you can fill out as you go, uh, pass them forward. If, if, if you get good grades and you get free money at the end, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, don't give it to me. I don't want them. This is just for you to take notes, just for, for you to kind of hopefully be helpful following along. So Esther is a unique book for, for a couple of reasons. Um, It's sort of set apart in a lot of ways from a lot of the other books in the Old Testament. The first reason Esther is really interesting uh, and different from a lot of the rest of the Bible is because God, Jehovah, Yahweh, uh, is not mentioned at all in the book of Esther, Uh, which is interesting, okay? Uh, As far as I know, and there may be another one, I didn't take the time to look and see, but this is one of the only books that I know of that does not mention anything about God. Okay, so it's seemingly, and in some senses, almost a secular book. Uh, it's, just, it's just a, a raw story uh, a, about life. There's not even really a mention to any of the practices of, of the Mosaic Covenant or of Judaism or any of those kinds of things in the book, which makes it really, really, really interesting, and we'll talk more about that. Um, the second thing that's interesting about the book of Esther is that uh, it's filled with really essentially the sinful actions of men and women, and without really the authorial emphasis on whether their actions were immoral or moral. What I mean by that is there's a lot of bad dudes in this book and a lot of bad gals in this book, a lot of bad decisions in this book, a lot of sinful behavior, and the author doesn't really tell us what the author thinks about that behavior. Does that make sense? The author doesn't really say, you know, Esther did this and that was not okay. Uh, the, the author really just seems to let the story unfold and kind of let the reader uh, decide for himself. The author doesn't seem too interested in, in branding something, uh, whether it's right or whether it's wrong, which is just kind of an interesting uh, thing about that. Now, that's easy to, to understand when you understand the fact that there are no good people in the Bible. Amen? In fact, there are no good people, period except Jesus. Okay. So when you read a book like Esther and you see uh, people doing things that seeming are seemingly immoral and seemingly wrong, we shouldn't really struggle with that because as Christians, theologically, we know that the heart of man is wicked and that the heart of man is sinful and that there are no good people apart from Christ. So shocker, here's a book about real people in real time in history, and they're doing really bad things. Okay. Not a surprise. So we can, we can set that aside. Now, what is the theme of Esther? Before we get into the narrative, I just want to talk a bit about kind of what the book is, uh, what the book is for. Uh, The first thing we always need to ask is not so much, what is uh, the book to me, or what does the book uh, mean to me, but really, what was the author intending the book to be? What was the author writing the book for? Okay, we have to ask that question, and really the answer to that question in the book of Esther is that the author was writing the book of Esther to remind the Jews what the Feast of Purim, and you can write that down, Purim, P-U-R-I-M, was all about. It was to draw the Jews' attention back to the event that caused them to have this celebration two days out of every year called Purim. The other reason that Esther was written, uh, the, the other, uh, I think, theme of the book, is God's sovereignty, okay, God's sovereignty, uh, and that's a, that's a big word that we throw around a lot. It's a big word that causes a lot of, of arguments and a lot of infighting, even within Christianity. But this book is a testament to God's sovereignty. And you may say, well, how can it be a testament to God's sovereignty if it doesn't even mention God? Okay, well we'll see. Uh, we'll, sh- we'll hopefully be able to, to show that as we unpack the story. It's almost impossible to read this book and not see the sovereign hand of God working, even though he isn't mentioned which is pretty crazy to think about. So, you guys ready to get into it? Let's do it. Uh, Chapter 1, if you guys got your Bibles, uh, I'm not going to put the text up because I really want you guys to bring your Bibles, and if I put the text up, you won't bring your Bibles. So, uh, here we go. Esther chapter 1, if you need a Bible, there's some over there on the back, Um, but uh, hopefully we can get into this um, together as as it church. So, here we go. Esther chapter 1, verse 1. Now, in the days of Ahaduerus... The Ahaduerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. And those days when King Ahaduerus sat in his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. Now we learn a lot about this book, the setting of this book, and one of our key characters right away in the first verse. Uh, If you are into highlighting or underlining, you might circle that name Ahaduerus. He is one of the four key characters in the book of Esther. Ahasuerus had another name that you guys are probably more familiar with, and it was Xerxes. Everybody say Xerxes. That was weak sauce. Everybody say Xerxes. Xerxes. Much better. That was the name that you probably are more familiar with, that you probably heard before. Now, who is Xerxes? Xerxes was the king of the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire was literally the the, the world-ruling empire at the time. Uh, It was an empire that was taken over from the Babylonian Empire. If you remember, the Babylonians were were the ones that carried away the Jews, Uh, and at one point, the Babylonian Empire was conquered by the Persian Empire. Xerxes is the king of the Persian Empire. Guys, this is literally the world, okay? Persia basically ruled the world, except for a few small provinces. Now, Xerxes was the third king to rule in Persia. His father was a man you might have heard of before named Darius. We read about him in the book of Daniel. And then his grandfather was a man by the name of Cyrus. If you guys were here two weeks ago, we learned about Cyrus. He was the one that sent the Jews back to build the temple. He was the first Persian king. So this is Cyrus' grandson, Xerxes. Xerxes. He is, it says in verse 1, in the Susa, in Susa, the city, that, that is the capital of Persia, okay, and it's going to be talked about a lot uh, in this book. It also gives us a clue as to how big Xerxes' kingdom was. It says that uh, literally from um, 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. Okay. So that's, uh, doesn't seem like a lot to us now, but then that was the world. Okay. He was the most powerful man on the face of the earth in that time. And to add to it, he knew he was, and to make it worse, he thought he was a God. Okay. Which is always a bad combination when you got a guy who's in a really powerful position who thinks uh, he's a God. They always seem to go hand in hand. Um, The first chapter of Esther really is centered around these three banquets. Now, this is kind of boring, so I won't go into this too much. But there's actually 10 banquets in the book of Esther, which doesn't seem like a big deal until you realize that there's only 12 banquets in the whole Old Testament. Uh, at least that word that's used in Esther. So out of the 12 in the Old Testament, 10 of them are here in Esther. The writer apparently really wanted to use that almost as a framework of the book of Esther. So as we're going through it, you're going to be like, man, all they do is party. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. It's party after party after party, banquet after banquet. And the first chapter starts and opens up with this giant banquet in which Xerxes, right, our king, uh, the king of Persia, in which Xerxes invites the entire uh, uh, entirety of, of his kingdom's rulers. Okay, so all of his um, all of his uh, leaders, uh, his his servants, the people that are in charge of his kingdom. he, he invites them to a summit. Or, or a gathering, basically, where they essentially get drunk and party for about 180 days, like you do in Persia, you know. Uh, that's just what they do. So for 180 days, per, uh, Xerxes has got his, his rulers, his leaders, his governors there, and they're partying, but they're not just there to party. History actually shows us they were there for another reason. They were there actually to plan the, the attack against Greece, which we actually have probably heard about uh, in, in all kinds of movies and all kinds of history. Uh, when they were defeated by Greece, if you remember the, the Battle of the 300 Spartans, this was the war that Xerxes was planning. So he wasn't just here getting drunk with his friends. They were also there for a purpose, and that purpose was to plan the attack on Greece, which is important, and you'll see, you'll see why. Uh, so after that first party, he then invites all of the people of Susa. So not just his governors, not just his leaders, but now he invites all the people of Susa to come in and has seven days of more partying and more drinking and more eating and more whatever uh, for seven whole days. And he actually decrees and commands that, hey, if you're going to get here, you're going to drink and you're going to do it on my tab. And why is the king doing this? Because he's full of himself because he wants to display his glory before his people. He wants people to see how rich he is, how powerful he is, how affluent he is by basically throwing these huge parties. Now, there's a third party going on, and that's Queen Vashti's party, or Queen Vashti's banquets, okay? So, simultaneously, the queen of Xerxes named Vashti is off doing her own party, and while Xerxes is drunk with his friends, partying it up, uh, he calls for his wife Vashti, who was more than likely very beautiful. He calls for her to come and basically to show off his wife, to show off the queen in front of all of his drunk buddies, okay, which is probably a really bad idea. Queen Vashti says, no way not going to do it. I'm not going to come. Uh, doesn't say exactly why. Again, doesn't really say exactly why she doesn't, but she doesn't seem like she wants to come. So she says, no way. Sorry, Xerxes, I'm not going to come parade myself in front of all your drunk friends. So Xerxes is furious, irritated, upset, instantly seeks counsel. And the other men, of course, are like, well, you know, if your wife has given you lip, then our wives are going to give us lip because if your wife can get away, you're the king. If she can get away with it, then man, what are our wives going to do? So you better make, a, you better make an example out of this Xerxes. And so he does that. And his fury and his rage, he basically demotes her, uh, divorces her, whatever you want to call it, puts her away, strips away her power and gets rid of Vashti. And that, that really is the end of her character in the narrative in chapter one. So chapter two, some things happen. Okay? Uh, if, if you want to make a note, between chapter 1 and chapter 2, there's actually about four years of history. And in chapter 2, if you look at it, it opens up. It says, After these things, when the anger of King Ahaduerus had abated, he remembered Vashti. So he's had some time to cool off. His royal tissy fit has calmed down a little bit. Uh, he's a little bit chill. And some other things have happened that history tells us. History actually shows us that in those four years, he actually lost a war with Greece. Okay, so he's not very happy, he's humbled, he's probably a little bit broken, and after his four-year failed campaign against Greece, he comes back with his tail between his legs and starts thinking, well, maybe it's time for me to find another queen. So he does what uh, any wise person does, he goes and asks his college-age buddies what the best way to do that is, which is always a really good idea, right? College-age guys sleeping on your couch, eating hot pockets. What do you think I should do? Uh, that's who he goes and, and he asks. He goes to his young, his, he goes to these young men, and he says, "Okay, what do I do to find a queen?" And no shock, they basically say, "Hey, I got an idea. Why don't you get all the most beautiful women from all of the provinces of all of Persia and bring them into your harem, and then you can, you know, take one a night and see which one pleases you the most?" Okay. Seems like something that a bunch of young college-age guys would probably think to do. uh, And he thinks it's a great idea. So he goes for it. Now, there's about 50 million people, uh, roughly, in the Persian kingdom. So you can probably guess about 25 million uh, of those would have been women. Just a guess, 50%, you know. So out of 25 million women, a certain amount were selected and brought into the king's harem. Now, when they're brought into the king's harem, basically Xerxes gives them a year to get their cosmetic game on. Okay. Uh, he basically says, you got a year to smell good, to look good, to whatever you need to do. Um, I don't know why it would take a year, but apparently he gave them a year. So they're waiting for a year to go in and have their night with the King. Um, people have tried to romanticize this. There's nothing romantic about it. It's disgusting. Guy's a pig. He's sleeping with a different woman every night and queen, uh, Soon-to-be Queen Esther ends up being one of those, as we'll see. Uh, What this really ends up becoming uh, is a raunchy version of The Bachelor, which is probably one of the worst shows that has ever been invented. I'm sorry if you watch it. Uh, Terrible idea, okay? Some rich guy who brings a bunch of women in and just sleeps with them and does whatever and then chooses one and then they get divorced a year later. It's a terrible idea, but this is essentially what's happening here uh, in this book. Same thing, Bachelor, okay? Just a Persian sort of version Now, it's in this setting that we meet uh, the first two, or the two primary characters of the book of Esther. Look at verse 5 of chapter 2. It says, Now there was a Jew, okay, now we're the first mention really here of the Jewish people in this pagan foreign culture of Persia. So now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. Everybody say Mordecai. Okay. Mordecai is important. Okay. Mordecai is the protagonist. He's the protagonist of the story. The son of J.R., the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Verse six, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. So we learn a few things about Mordecai from, um, from this text right here. First of all, he was, or his parents more than likely were, carried away in what was called the first deportation. Babylonian exile, the first group that was carried away among them was Daniel. If you guys are familiar with Daniel, was carried away to Babylon. And in that group would have been <clears throat> Mordecai, more than likely his parents or his, his family. So he was Uh, That's how he got here. If you're wondering, how did a Jew get to Persia? Well, he was taken captive by the Babylonian exile. Okay. Um, That means that this book was written about 100 years after the exile. Okay. Remember, God said, you'll be exiled for 70 years. So this has been 100 years. What that tells us is, is that the remnant... Guys, remember two weeks ago, or actually last week too, in Nehemiah, uh, a remnant was sent back to Israel to start to rebuild. That means that has already happened. Okay, so Zerubbabel is already there uh, with Ezra, and uh, they're building the temple, and this is all happening simultaneously. But Esther, of course, takes place back in Persia. Okay, a few things this tells us about Mordecai as well is that he chose not to go back with the remnant. Okay, doesn't say why. Um, But for whatever reason, he chose to stick it out in Persia, which a lot of of Israelites did. Uh, He seems to be, from what we can tell, very quiet, very silent about his faith. Okay, literally never see a peep or a mention about what his belief is in Yahweh God or if he has faith in Yahweh God, we don't know. Uh, He seems to just be very, very silent about it. Now, verse 7, we meet our second character, It says he was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther. Everybody say Esther. Important character number three. Now, why does it call her Hadassah? Because that was her Jewish name. Okay, if you guys remember the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were given new names. Okay, that's what happened when you got carried away into a pagan land. One of the first things they did was to give you a new name. So her Jewish name is Hadassah, and her Persian name is Esther. Now, she is the daughter of his uncle, who? Mordecai, okay? She's Mordecai's cousin. For whatever reason, a lot of people think he was her uncle. He wasn't. He was her cousin. Mordecai, Esther, cousins, okay? Um, The young woman, Esther, had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, so she's an orphan, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So Esther is, in some ways, sort of adopted by her older cousin, who was sort of a father figure to her. And we'll see how they interact in that way uh, as the the narrative unfolds. So who is Esther? Who is Hadassah? Let's meet her a little bit. Uh, First of all, she's an orphan. Her parents have died. Okay, She's been brought in uh, by this man Mordecai. She's very beautiful. Uh, Mordecai tells her specifically not to share that she's a Jew. So the reason she doesn't do that is because she was instructed to. She was instructed to by Mordecai. And when Xerxes scours all of Persia to find the most beautiful women and to put them into his harem, she happens to be, by no accident, one of them. Esther, this young Jewish orphan girl, somehow ends up in the harem of the king in line to try out for the episode of The Persian Bachelor. Okay? Uh, amazing how God somehow is orchestrating things already. So, long story short, the king has his night with Esther, and whatever happened, he liked her. Okay? She pleases the king. He decides she's the one. Esther, this Jewish orphan girl, will be now the queen of the Persian Empire the Persian kingdom, which is kind of crazy. And I have to say, it's something so interesting that I love about the Old Testament is constantly and continually seeing these Jewish, seemingly insignificant people be brought up to some of the most powerful positions in the ancient world. Joseph, constantly brought up to be the right-hand man of, of, of Pharaoh himself, or whether it be Daniel, who was brought up to literally be one of the most trusted leaders of the Babylonian and the Persian world. And yet again, here is Esther, this Jewish girl, which honestly, when you study history, Israel was insignificant in this time. They weren't even in their homeland. They weren't even a superpower. They were nothing. But yet these Jewish people with the favored hand of God on their life were continually brought into these amazing positions of power and influence. It's God's sovereignty time and time again. Now, think for a minute too before we move on how scandalizing this would have been for Esther. Now, again, the the book doesn't really tell us Whether she went willingly, whether she fought it, whether she had remorse over it. But this is a Jewish girl, a Jewish virgin who is marrying, sleeping with first, and then marrying a pagan Gentile uncircumcised man. Okay? Now, in Jewish culture, that is scandalizing. Okay? It's not something you do, it's just not. And Esther is. Really thrust into this situation, which almost seems that she can't even help it. This situation, which in so many ways goes against so many of the things that she would have been raised to have sought, uh, to been raised to have known as right. Now, take a look at verse nineteen. The story continues. Now, when the virg- when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was at the king's gate. Okay, in your head, don't picture like a gate. Okay, uh, I think in the cartoons, they have like Mordecai, like an idiot, like jumping up over the gate, trying to look and see if Esther's there. It's totally not what this is saying. Okay, the king's gate was the place of business. It was the place of commerce. It was the place of rulings. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was an area more than it was like a literal gate. Okay, so uh, Mordecai is hanging around uh, the king's gate. Verse 20, Esther had not made known her kindred or her people. She still hasn't said that she's a Jew. As Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. Verse 21. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahaduerus. Now, for some reason, these two eunuchs are really mad at the king, probably because he made them eunuchs. Just a thought. I would be pretty upset, too. Okay, but either way, these two eunuchs, they're upset at the king. They're plotting and scheming how they might kill the king. And guess who just so happens to, by complete accident, no sovereign hand of God at all, just so happens to be in the king's gate, overhears, who is it? Mordecai. Mordecai, this older cousin to Esther, overhears this plot. So Mordecai goes immediately to Esther. He says, I've heard of this plan to execute the king. Uh, You need to tip him off. You need to warn him. So Esther does just that. She goes in. She tells the king. The king uh, has the two eunuchs uh, put to death or arrested or whatever it is, uh, and he's saved. But interestingly enough, and kind of counter to what you would think would happen, the king doesn't doesn't actually reward Mordecai. He doesn't do anything about it just keeps going on. Typically, kings would reward loyalty. That's how they could sort of purchase loyalty, but he doesn't seem to do that. Um, Just note that, file that away. Then in chapter three, we meet our fourth character. Okay, so so far we have Xerxes, we have Mordecai, we have Esther, and here's our fourth character. And this character is the antagonist of the story. We have Mordecai, the protagonist. We have Haman, the antagonist. Everybody say "Haman." Haman. Haman. Okay, here is Haman in verse 1 of chapter 3. After these things, King Ahaduerus promoted Haman, the Agagite. Note that word, Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. So this guy, Haman, is now literally brought up to be basically the number one, the right-hand man to Xerxes himself to have s- just a- an amazing amount of power to-, to-, to steward over so much of the king's uh, power himself. Now, it says specifically that he is an Agagite. Well, what is an Agagite? That's not something you would probably just read right over but the Agagites were descendants of a king named Agag. If you remember, and we actually covered this not that long ago, if you remember, King Agag was the king of the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were known for constantly trying to exterminate, to wipe out the Jews. Even back in Deuteronomy, and the, when they were battling the Canaanites, the Amal- Amalekites were constantly uh, coming against, fighting, battling the Jews. They were sort of this mortal enemy, if you will, of the Jews. And if you remember in the story of Saul, God told Saul specifically to go in, destroy the Amalekites, all of them, especially King Agag, the leader of the Amalekites. And what does Saul do? He doesn't do it. He, he leaves King Agag sort of as this trophy uh, to represent, you know, look what I did. Um, and because of that, Samuel, the prophet, has to go in and take care of business and actually hacks up, uh, actually hacks up this king, Agag. Okay? And from that point, that was sort of the turning point for Saul, his disobedience. Okay? How interesting is it, though, that this man, Agag, who had it out for the Jews, centuries down the road, okay, generations have come and gone, here is his great-great-great-grandson, Haman, has the same hatred, the same angst against the Jews. Well, why? Probably because he knew his history. Probably because he knew that he descended from someone who was killed by the Jews, and someone that hated the Jews, and someone that was at war with the Jews. Okay, so immediately, uh, without even without the author even really telling us, there's so much tension between these two characters: Mordecai, the Jew, and Haman, the Agagite. Everybody catching that? Catching that? Verse two. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman, the Agagite, was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews." The people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So first, Haman refuses, I'm sorry, Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman. He says, I'm not gonna bow down. The author, again, doesn't tell us why. Doesn't say if it's because of, of religious reasons, he doesn't say because he just didn't like the guy, if it doesn't say if it's because he's an agai guy, whatever it is, Mordecai refuses to bow down to this man. He refuses to. And Haman, who is a terrible character, Immediately, his pride is pricked and he hates now Mordecai. His vengeance is set on Mordecai. And not only on Mordecai now, but all of the Jews. All of the Jews. Haman now has an intention to see all of the Jews die. All of them, exterminated. Now, this is something that we don't have time to talk about, but I just want to briefly touch as a side note. Satan hates the Jews. He hates God's people. He always has. He always will. And he, throughout history, if you look at it, has continually tried to not just hurt the Jews, not just wound the Jews, but exterminate the Jews. And why, why, why does Satan have such animosity? Well, for, first of all, because they're God's chosen, right? Because they're God's people. But even more than that, in the Old Testament narrative... Because through the Jews would come one that would crush the head of the serpent, Jesus. See, if Satan can exterminate the Jews through the hands of a wicked man named Haman, then Jesus won't come through the line of the Jews to bind eternally Satan's plots, right? Just interesting to think about. So, Haman, in his anger, he he goes to the king, and he convinces the king that they should wipe out all of the Jews. He's so adamant about it, he even offers his own money to pay the people to to go in and actually do it. So the king, for whatever reason, gives over his power to Haman. He says, yeah, whatever you want to do, here's my signet ring. Write up whatever letter you want to write. Send it out. I don't care. Just do it. Whatever you want, Haman. You got it. So Haman takes the king's signet ring. He writes letters to all of the different provinces. He stamps it with the king's signet ring. And in those letters is commands and orders for all of the people of the empire to rise up and destroy in totality the Jews. To wipe out with genocide all of the Jews, to plunder all of their goods, and just basically to wreck them. Okay, Haman is bent on completely destroying the Jews. To do this, and this is is worth noting, to decide when he's going to do this, he casts lots to see what day would be the best day to destroy the Jews. And those dice or those lots or whatever they were that they cast in order to determine that day are called pur, P-U-R, pur, okay? It's where you get the name Purim, okay? The holiday that, as you'll see, they celebrate. So just something interesting to write down. Chapter four. Mordecai and the Jews are absolutely wrecked by what just happened. The news gets out that their doom is coming, that their, their fate is sealed, that Haman is ensured, that they're going to be wiped off the face of the earth. And so they do what Jews do. They tear their garments and they begin to wail and they begin to mourn and they begin to cry out uh, to God to deliver them. It doesn't say God here, but that's what they would have been doing. Okay. Uh, they're, they're absolutely broken, that all of their people are going to be wiped out. Now Esther, back to Esther, she's sitting in the palace, okay? Not really understanding what's going on, not really knowing why Mordecai is mourning. So she sends him a new pair of clothes, just trying to help him out, sends him a new pair of clothes, and she sends one of her servants to try to figure out, why are you mourning? Why are you so upset? What's going on here? And Mordecai sends word back to her, telling her what's going on. When he does that, though, he also asks her to do something. He says, Esther, Esther maybe you were placed in the, the, the presence of the king for such a time as this. Maybe this is why you were born, Esther. Maybe this is why you were created. Maybe this is why you were chosen. Maybe this is why all this craziness happened where you were selected to go into this this place and and, and, and to, to be selected as the queen. Perhaps it was just for this moment. And he tells Esther, you have to act. You have to do something. You have to help. Okay? Esther sends word back and she basically says, I can't. Because if I go into the presence of the king without him actually requesting me to, he could kill me. So her life is literally in, in jeopardy here. Mordecai sends word back to Esther and he says, you think you're going to be safe within the walls of the gate? You think that, you, you think that just because you're, you're, you're the, queen, the king's wife that this won't affect you? Uh, and he basically calls her out. He says, this, this is why you were born. This is why you exist, Esther. Maybe it was just for this moment where you can save your people, where you can step in and advocate for your people. Now, Esther is having this internal conflict that you can kind of see here in the narrative. This internal conflict between who she is truly, okay, this, this, this Jew, this girl that actually belongs to the people of God, uh, and, and, and on the other hand, this Persian queen. So who is she? Who is she going to be? And in this moment, she's wrestling with that. Who am I? What path am I going to choose? Mordecai's pep talk does the trick in verse 15 of, verse, of chapter 4. It says, Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast for my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king Though it is against the law, and famously says here, if I perish, I perish. So Esther (laughs) owns who she is. She says, You know what? Let's fast, implied, let's pray. I'm gonna go before the king. It doesn't matter what happens to me. If I die, I die. If I perish, I perish. It doesn't matter. I have to save my people. She's growing up, she's taking ownership of her people. She's standing up and being the advocate uh, that they need in in this moment. So chapter five, Esther dresses herself up as best as she can in her best robes. She goes before the king expecting possibly that she could lose her life in this moment. She goes before the king and she finds favor in his sight. He sees the queen even though he hasn't seen her in months. His heart it's still for her. And he says, Esther, whatever it is that you want, even up to half of my kingdom, take it. And kings always say that in the Bible, like, up to, up to half of my kingdom. That's kind of like a Jimmy Stewart, like, you want the moon? I'll lasso the moon and bring it down for you. It's kind of this, like, whatever you want, babe, up to half of my kingdom, it's yours. You know, you want Ferrari? You can have 10 Ferraris, whatever it is. He basically offers her anything she wants. Okay, once again, God's sovereignty here, right? God is softening the heart of the king so that she can bring her request. So what does she do? She says, hey, let's have a banquet because that's what you do in the book of Esther. Let's have a party. Let's sit down. Let's eat. Let's drink, whatever. So she invites specifically the king Xerxes and the Agagite Haman to this party. Okay, This kind of private event at this party, basically. Now, as uh, she does that, Haman... The Agag guy is feeling pretty good about himself. Man, Queen Esther, I must be pretty special. Queen Esther invites me to this this party, and and, and, and I'm the only one. It's like exclusive backstage pass, okay? So he's feeling pretty good about himself. But as he's walking home from this banquet, this party with the king uh, and with Esther, he sees Mordecai, and, and it's instantly the lead in his balloon. He instantly remembers how much he hates this man and how much he wants him dead and how much he wants the Jews dead. So he goes home and he starts venting to his wife. Uh, what do I do? This man is very existence, is an insult to my life, whatever. You know, and she she's like a good wife. She says, Hey, you know, hang him. Uh, you know, bad wife. I'm just that was a joke. I'm seeing if you guys are awake, because I know this is a lot. Um, so yeah, she's like, just hang him, you know, just, just put him to death, build some gallows, we'll hang him tomorrow. Let's do it. So Haman's like, great idea. Builds the gallows, Mordecai's gonna die tomorrow. Uh, and here's where the story starts to really get interesting, starts to really get ironic. Okay. The next day, the, the big banquet that Esther invites them to happens. Okay. Um, And at this banquet, this is where Esther comes out as a Jew. And she says, Hey, I am of these people. These are my people. And her request to the King is made that she wants her people to be saved. Okay. Now, as she makes that request as she makes that request the king is instantly furious who edict who 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 sent the edict who who decided that all the Jews should be wiped out who's trying to kill my wife okay the king is irritated furious and Haman's sort of in the background like awkwardly like oh man like i'm in trouble you know kind of raises his hand like yeah sorry that was that was me okay now instantly Haman the agag guy is in the bad graces of the king the king storms out, upset, mad. This is a really interesting scene. As he storms out, Haman rushes to the feet of Esther to beg for his life. As he's doing so, Xerxes walks back in, sees Haman at the feet of his wife, and some reason for some, somehow thinks that he's trying to molest his wife. So Xerxes has had it with Haman and ironically inevitably here's the poetic justice piece of this narrative uh, ironically Haman the Agagite ends up being hung from the gallows that were intended for Mordecai okay and that's really how the, the, the interesting part of this book how all of the things that seemed to be meant for evil for the Jews and all the things that seemed to be meant for evil for Mordecai end up getting turned around and the evil that was meant for Mordecai uh, for yeah for Mordecai ultimately was taken on by Haman. So uh, there's a lot of stuff there that I'm skipping over and a lot of narrative that I'm not getting into, but I think if I keep going, we're all going to fall asleep. So you guys have to read the book for yourself, okay? A couple more things happen. Um, Chapter 8, even though, okay, even though Mordecai now is, is in the graces of the king and he gives him Haman's position and even though Haman is put to death and his sons are put to death, even though all of that happened, the king says, I can't reverse what has been done in terms of the destruction of the Jews. He can't. The edict had already been sent out. The letters had already been put out, so he can't do anything about it. So what happens is he says, here, Esther, you take, here, Mordecai, you take my signet ring, you write whatever letter you want, whatever decree that you can, you can give and whatever you want to give, just do it. So Esther and Mordecai, basically what they do, since they can't reverse what had been done, uh, they write more letters to all of the provinces of the Jews saying, hey, on this day, they're going to try to wipe you out. Defend yourself. Defend yourself. Go to war. Okay? Go to war. And that's exactly what happens. The day it comes, the Jews come together. They unite. They fight for their life, and they're victorious. Okay? It's just this really cool, epic uh, part of the story. In chapter 10, we get this interesting epilogue about how uh, Mordecai really became this, this amazing and powerful man and how he was given all of the things that Haman had. Um, and ultimately, uh, that's kind of, kind of the end of the book. Now, Purim, the holiday that I said the author had written to remind them of, Purim was to remember this scene. It was to remember this moment when God saved, through his sovereignty, the Jews. Okay, and that's Purim, taken from that word poor. So, now that's the book. That's the narrative. Go home, read it, because I skipped a bunch of stuff. But all I want to do now is I just want to ask a few questions. We've just got a few more minutes here. I want to ask a few questions that try to get to the heart of what do we do with this narrative? What do we do uh, with this book? First thing I want to ask is how does, how does Esther, okay, the book that we just studied, how does Esther fit in to the entirety of the redemptive narrative of scripture. In other words, how does this book about Esther and Mordecai and Naaman and all of these things, how does this book matter to the whole narrative, the whole narrative of scripture? Well, firstly, it shows God continuing God's continuing faithfulness to his promises. Why does it matter what happened in Persia? Well, what matters is, is that God is keeping his promise to preserve his people. See, God made a promise in Genesis 3, didn't he? That he would crush the head of the snake. Well, how would he do that? Through Messiah. Messiah can't come through a people that don't exist. God made a covenant. He made a promise with Abraham, didn't he? That Abraham's seed would be like the stars of the sky. Well, God can't fulfill that promise if if genocide happens and the Jews are removed. God is fulfilling his promise, and Esther is showing us and illustrating us, just like the whole Bible does, that God is faithful, that God is sovereign, and that God is moving along his redemptive narrative all through Scripture. Esther is another reminder of that. But the other reason, okay, the other reason that I see uh, Esther as important to the full narrative of Scripture is that it also shows that God's narrative of redemption is not limited to Israel. Okay? What I mean by that is, is how interesting that this book takes place outside of Israel. Okay, the majority of the Bible takes place inside of Israel, in the nation. But yet here's this book out in the Persian Empire. What that means is, what that tells us is that God is working everywhere. Not just in the church, not just in Medford, not just in America, not just in Israel. God is working all throughout the world, and always has worked all throughout the world. That has not changed. Not only through all the world, but through all people. God has worked through all kinds and all sorts of people. This story is filled with kind of sketchy, uh, weird drunkenness and, and, and sex and just a lot of things that you read and you think, how is this spiritual? How does this have anything to do with God? How, how is this redeemable? But what the book shows is that God's sovereignty is not limited to quote-unquote spiritual things. God is sovereign over the real things, the raw things, the things that happen, uh, the things that are even disobedience. God is capable and, and, and able to use and turn for his sovereign Plan, it was pointed out to me interestingly the other day that in Matthew, when you look at the lineage of Christ, every woman in that lineage, lineage specifically was in some way tied to some kind of a sexual scandal. Okay, literally, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, even Mary was accused, okay, she wasn't, but she was accused of getting pregnant out of wedlock. And what that shows is is that God's sovereign hand is not only working in the quote-unquote spiritual parts of life, but God's sovereign hand is working in the raw aspects of life. Through the failures, through the screw-ups, through the hurt, through the pain, through the struggle. Okay, In this scene where where this young Jewish woman is forced to be brought into a harem to sleep with a, a terrible pagan man, how is that possibly redeemable? But yet here is God using that story to fit into his redemptive plan for Israel and for you and I. God's hand uses all things, all brokenness, all terrible things in the world together for his purposes. And that's good news. My second question I want to answer is why is God not mentioned in this book? Okay? Something you have to wrestle with if you're going to read the book of Esther. Why is it that God is not mentioned in this book? And I think it's for two reasons. Okay? Reason number one, I think it's intentional. I think the author purposely left the name of God out of this book so that the reader, you and I, would be forced to lean in, would be forced to look and to see just how much God did behind the scenes, to show us that God is working even when you don't see him, that God is working even if he isn't manifesting himself in a way that you would expect. I don't see how God's in this This story. I don't see how God's in this scene in my life. This, this season in my life. Well, guess what? He's there. Okay. He's there. He's obviously there in Esther. And even though the, the author um, chooses, I think purposely not to include him, he's still there. Had the author laid it out perfectly for you, you may not have been as likely to look for it. You know, it's funny. I've read like 20 intros to this book to just try to get a grasp on it, and every single one of them said, this book's about the sovereignty of God. This book's about the sovereignty of God. And I'm like, how funny is that? That a book that doesn't mention God, everyone agrees is about the sovereignty of God. Would we have come to that conclusion if the author had laid it out perfectly for us? The author, I think, intended for us to see the sovereignty of God in the raw things of life. Now, one last question, and then we'll finish up. If Esther is a testament to God's sovereignty, okay, that God is in control over all things, if that's what Esther stands for, then what role does Mordecai and Esther, our two key stars here, what role did they play? Did they play a role at all? Uh, in other words, another way to say it is how do we balance God's overarching sovereignty with our own responsibility to act? Okay, So here's a story where uh, ultimately Esther is sort of not really making up the script, but she's just kind of a character in it. She's not really choosing to be brought, as far as we can tell, into this, uh, into this harem. She's not really asking to become the queen, but yet it keeps happening. Uh, these things all just seemingly get moved into place. Mordecai just so happens to overhear this plot uh, against Xerxes. Uh, it just, I didn't bring it up, but it just so happens that Xerxes uh, has the records read to him, and in those records, he's reminded of Mordecai's uh, good work that he did to save the king. All of these crazy events, okay? So how do you balance that with the fact that at some point, Esther had to make a decision? At some point, Esther had to say, I have to act. Okay, now to answer that question, I want you to go back and I want you to look at chapter 4, verse 12. And what chapter 4, verse 12 is, is this is the specific conversation in the heat of the moment between Mordecai and Esther when he is telling her, Esther, you have to act. We need you to save our people. This is the conversation that happens. They told Mordecai what Esther had said. And Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Quote, Do you think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the Jews? In other words, you can't hide from this, Esther. And then he goes on, he says, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Now that's Interesting. Why would Mordecai, in this moment where he really needs Esther to act, say, but you know what, Esther, if you don't do it, someone else will do it. If you don't act, someone else will be raised up. He's almost like letting her off the hook. But then in the next verse, he immediately says, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows, famous verse right here, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So he's saying two things that almost seemingly contradict. On one hand, he's saying, don't worry, Esther. No matter what you do, implied, God is going to deliver his people. But at the same time, perhaps you were made just for this moment. Perhaps you were created just for this Before we can understand how necessary we are to God's work, we have to understand how unnecessary we are to God's work. Okay? Before you can understand how necessary you are, Christian, saint, to the working hand of God, you have to understand that God will do what he's going to do even if you walk away like a coward and don't do anything. Even if you turn your back on God's plan, he will still do what he's going to do because he's sovereign. God is bigger than our mistakes, and God's sovereign plan is not limited to our mistakes. But, at the same time, God gives us the privilege of, like Esther, standing in a moment of time and realizing that everything leading up to this could be for this moment. Now, I don't think it looks like one big moment in life. I don't think it looks like, oh man, I hope I don't miss my Esther moment, like you only get one. I think it looks like thousands of moments Thousands of Esther moments where you're standing in a moment and God says, Hey, you know, you don't have to obey me. I can, I can, I can figure it out without you. But I've created you for this moment. And I've created you for this moment in time to walk in the good works that I have put before you. Let's put it up on the screen, Liam. Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand That we should walk in them. What Paul is saying here is exactly what Mordecai is saying to Esther. Perhaps God foreordained this whole situation so that, Esther, you could have a moment to be the hand of God for redemption. Perhaps God's sovereignty has put you in the house that you're in, with the family that you're in, with the spouse that you have, with the health that you have, with the job that you have, and the money that you have, so that you could be his workmanship. So that you could be his expression of grace in that moment. So that you could be, literally, his hand of redemption. Perhaps God's sovereignty has put you right where you're at for right where you're at for a reason. Your abilities, your influence, your resources, your understandings of the gospel, God strategically placed those in your life. I don't care who you are, what you can do, what you can't do. God has fearfully and wonderfully constructed you and made you for such a moment as this. For such a moment as when you walk out the door and get in your car. For such a moment as when you go home. For such a moment tomorrow, when you wake up and go to work, what are you talking about I'm saying? I'm talking about stepping into the reality that yes, God is sovereign, but God has chosen to give you opportunities to be His hands. that God has chosen to give you opportunity to be the expression of God's grace. Don't waste that. Everything that was terrible up to that point for Esther was redeemed in a moment, and what happened in that moment, she chose to obey. Everything that seemed horrible up to that moment. Haman and all of these terrible things were redeemed in that moment when she said, okay, God, I give. I was made for this moment. I was made for this thing and I'm going to trust you. This is what Jesus said was wrestling with in the garden of Gethsemane when he was sweating drops of blood. And he said, God, I know that I'm made for this moment. I know that my body was given physically, the incarnation was given so it could be broken. I know that my hands were given so they could be pierced. I know that my feet were created to be pierced with nails and my back was created to be ripped apart. By a whip. And I I know that my head was created to have the crown of thorns be pressed into it. And I know that my being was made to absorb the wrath of God. But Jesus said, Is there any other way? To which he knew the response of God the Father would say, No, Christ, Jesus, you were made for this moment. Jesus was sent for that moment. And he submitted to the Father, and walked in what he was designed to do. Don't get me wrong, Jesus wasn't created, but the incarnation, the whole point of it was for him to die, and for him to live. And because Jesus was faithful to his moment, and because Esther was faithful to her moment, you and I are saved eternally. Again, it's not some big epic thing, okay? hope I don't miss my moment, Guys, it's thousands of moments. Every day you are going to wake up and you are going to choose, will I walk in what God has put forth for me to walk in today? Or will I walk in disobedience and be useless? This doesn't look like what our Western culture wants it to look like. Fulfilling our epic, fun, romantic, Lord of the Rings life, okay? What it probably looks like is being wrung out for the gospel. What it probably looks like is being, as Jesus said, taking up your cross. Or as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That may be what your moment looks like. It may be a moment like Jesus's that terrified him to death. It may be a moment like Esther's where she was literally afraid for her life. The moments aren't easy. But they were put there by God. And they were put there for a reason. Paul said, I will not waste my life. I will finish my course and finish it well. I will display the gospel of the grace of God in all I do. I will run my race to the end. Paul saw his life as a means to be poured out. He saw his life not as a savings account, but as an investment. He saw his abilities as not something that were given for him to just simply enjoy, but something that were given for him to spend. And guys... When I get to the end of my life, I hope that I have spent every penny of my life, not financially only, but physically giving it to the kingdom work of God. Esther was made for a time like that. And you and I were not saved and given the gospel and given the Holy Spirit so we could sit around and be comfortable We were given the gospel. We were given the spirit. We were saved so we could go work for the kingdom to be wrung out for the the cause of Christ. Okay, and this isn't like, let's go suffer just to suffer. This is like, let's start being what God has designed us to be, the conduits of his grace, the hands of his redeeming work. So Sunday, you know, this thing happens with Stephanie, and it just was crazy. It just was this crazy event on Sunday. But yesterday, we're having a prayer meeting in here, and I'm over there at the table, and me and some of the other pastors, and we're praying in groups, and Craig came, which was awesome, and he's in our group, and we're praying over Craig. and, And I'm just praying, and as I'm praying, I'm looking around the room, and I'm thinking, God, thank you that you made Craig the way that you made him. You made him for such a time as this. See, God created Craig the way God created Craig so that he could use Craig in this moment. God God created everything and is redeeming and restoring everything for such a moment as this. And I was just so thankful in that moment that God is in control and that God is using everything. God is using what happened on Sunday in mighty ways. God is redeeming the frailty of Stephanie's heart and the frailty of her body. He is redeeming it for his purposes. I don't think she'd have it any other way. Our bodies were made to be spent, spent on the glory of God. Our hearts were meant to be broken and poured out by loving God's people for doing kingdom work. That's what we were designed for. Our bodies weren't made to be saved. They were made to be spent. And there's life in that. Amen? Would you guys stand? God, thank you for your sovereignty. Thank you for how clearly we can see you working even the terrible things in life together for something better. God, thank you that... Each of us have been fearfully and wonderfully made and that each of us are given so many moments that were set before us by you and your sovereignty that we simply have to embrace and walk in. And when we pray that we wouldn't miss out on what you've called us to do in this life, thinking about ourselves. I pray that we would take up our cross and like you, Jesus, we would look to suffer and suffer well for the kingdom. Lord, that we would run our race well. And God, that we would hear at the end of our life, truly good and faithful servants, that you knew us. God, help us, Lord. We need help in our weakness. We just thank you that you're in control, Father. We thank you for who you are tonight. We thank you for the book of Esther. I pray it would always be a reminder to us of your sovereignty, God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. God bless you guys. We'll see you Sunday.